0: Good morning. Good to see you guys. We are in week two of this series called Called to Be, where we're looking at this idea that the Bible refers to us, God refers to us as a priesthood, a royal priesthood. Show of hands, how many of you actually think about yourself as a priest sometimes? Got one, and she pulled it down real fast, (laughs) right? Good for you, I'm proud of you, I'm sincere. Right? Not many. Last service, I, there was like nobody like, that, that really thought of that. It, it's, it's awkward. You know what I think? I think if there's anybody in this room that would probably go, Oh, I think about myself that way. I'm a pastor. I mean, that's probably close to what most of us would think. Like, But can I be candid? I, I don't think about myself this way very often. Because when I think about a priest... I think of a man in black with a collar. How many of you guys think of that same thing? That's you. Okay. How many of you think of like classic Judaism, like robes and all the things from the, old, like the Bible? That's what comes to your mind. How many of you think of Eastern or Russian Orthodox? Because your background maybe. Okay. we got a few of you guys in here as well. That's what you go to. Right. But I'm a Protestant pastor. You're in a Protestant church. We don't think about ourselves as priests very often, do we? It's a little bit weird, it is. I was gonna have you turn to the person sitting next to you and look them dead in the eyes and say, you are a priest, but I already know how, I was just gonna do it to mess with you. I know how it's gonna end up. Like you're gonna find yourselves being like, that felt a little bit strange. And yet the Bible refers to us as a royal priesthood. There's this really profound passage found in first Peter. It's the anchor passage for this entire series where we're referred to as part of the church as this royal priesthood, meaning as individuals, This is part of who we are, and that's significant. So let's make it less weird together. I think that's what I, what I think we should do in this series. Let's make it less weird together. Let, let's unpack what it means so that we can see the beauty of what the, the Bible's asking or what God's actually calling us to, what, he, what he's done for us or what's there. Last week, so each week of this, by the way, we're looking at a different aspect. Last week, Glenn looked at this, this notion that for historically, especially in Exodus 19, which is what Peter's actually quoting when, he, when we read our passage, he's quoting all the way back in Exodus 19, that's when God establishes the priesthood. And, and so Glenn looked and said, you know, part of their role, was to connect people to God. And so who in your life needs that connection? Who in your life thinks something's standing in the way? And what can you do? How can you help mediate that, be a part of that with people? And today, I'll tell you what we're gonna talk about, where we're going. Today, we're gonna look at this idea that every priest ministered to people. Every priest had a ministry of some kind. That's where we're headed. So let's go to this passage, right? This anchor passage. And this is all we're gonna work through today is this one thing. 1 Peter 2, 9. Peter writes to the church, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There it is, right? He writes to this church and he says, you are a royal priesthood. Now, in order to understand that, let's unpack a little bit of of just context. So I taught through some of this about two weeks ago. So if you want like a fuller description, go back two weeks and maybe listen to that message. You can do that online. Today, here's all we really need to understand so that we can keep moving here. And it's this, when Peter writes to his audience, his audience is going through a really tough time. They're being persecuted uh, heavily, not just by the people around them, but by the Roman emperor, which means it's kind of cascading down through society. And so they're watching people lose their lives. They're watching people flee from their homes. They're watching people get, you know, family members and friends and, and parts of their community get drug out uh, of their homes into, you know, being tortured or killed or arrested or heavy, heavy, crazy amounts of consequence. And so they're fleeing, this is an era where people are hiding this or they're meeting underground or they're fleeing their homes, their communities, and they're, they're going to some other place, uh, some other land, some other country, but basically leaving their homes and their lands. And this is why in First Peter, when it says who this is written to, it says to the elect exiles of the dispersion, to those who are scattered and dispersed. That's the population that he's writing to. So really, really tough time, but we need to pause here because I think there's something in this that could be lost on us really, really easy. And in order for us to understand the significance of when Peter says, you are royal priesthood, uh, I I want us to see this here this morning. And it's just because we're Americans. We might miss this or because we're modern day Americans in particular. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about this question really quick. And for some of you, I'm just gonna be honest, you're gonna be chasing this question all day. And it's this, how many places and how many homes have you lived in in your lifetime? And I'm, I'm saying like you can include apartments, dorms, everything. How many different homes have you lived in in your lifetime? When I went to go answer that question for me, I was like, oh, three. I think three, that's about what it's been. And I realized it's actually nine. Nine, And I just didn't even realize that I've, I've just had some different moments in different places. The average American will live in about 11 different homes over the course of their lifetime. If I'm including apartments, dorms, all the things, right? About 11 different spaces over the course of their lifetime. The average American will also own up to three homes. Not all at the same time, but like buy, purchase, sell three different places. This is why when my wife and I were going to buy our house, I still live in the first house that we ever purchased. I've been there for 16 years. And when we went to buy it, we were young and scared out of our minds because that's a big mortgage payment and we don't know what to do. You know, you remember all all those things. And uh, the lady who was our realtor looked at us and she said, Oh guys, this is great. This is a great starter home. How many of you have heard that terminology before? They say that, we say that because this is a great place to buy right now so that you can move somewhere else someday, right? That's the way that that's articulated. Because we almost have this expectation that you you won't be in the same place. You're going to go from place to place. And I just needed to highlight that because that can't be further from the Jewish context that we find ourselves in when we read this passage. For them, home was way more than shelter and investment, You see, when you left home, chances are you you only lived in either one house or maybe two houses your entire life. If you were a woman in that culture, when you got married, you left the house of your father and mother. If you were a man in that culture, you didn't. You began building an addition onto your parents' household where you and your future bride would then live. And then when your family got married, guess who did the same thing? And so you're kind of like building out the compound. You're kind of like building out this community and what inevitably happens and you can go to towns and stuff and go, so that based on this town, this whole family complex lives here. That's why these are these people from this town is because where you were from wasn't just like shelter and investment. It was your ancestry. It was your history. It was tied into who you are in a deep and meaningful way. Furthermore, it was your community. This is a collectivist culture. And so this is where their ministry happens. This is where their community is. And your community isn't just something you you go to. It shapes who you are and your role and how you perceive yourself. So when these people are forced to flee their homes and go to the surrounding lands, they don't just lose their property, shelter, and investment. They lose a part of who they are. Do you see how big this is? They don't just foreclose on a house that they loved in a place that they'd kind of established as theirs. They lose their story. They move away from their community. They have to flee and leave. They, they leave where ministry was happening for them. They leave where their story was, where their ancestry was, the thing that anchored and rooted them and helped shape who they actually are. This is such a big deal. And this, you see how this could be lost on us pretty easily in our modern day culture with the way we are right now. So I wanted you to know that and I wanted you to hold that background because that's the audience that Peter writes this letter to. And I want to go back and read this passage one more time. And I want you to think about it. I want you to think about where they are and how they are and what they've lost and what they're struggling. I Just put yourselves as best as you possibly could in that situation. Let's read these words again. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He looks at them. He says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Can you imagine what it'd been like to read that, to hear those words to you? When you're like, I've lost my identity, I've lost my story, and he looks and he says, you are a royal priesthood. They'd be saying, no, 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 I'm not a priest, I need a priest, he'd be like, no, 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 you are a royal priesthood. You are people for God's own possession. You have this marvelous light inside of you. Go pro- proclaim it. Go share that peace. Can you, can you just imagine how that would have impacted them, how that would have been received? What he's doing here that's so significant is Peter's essentially saying, look, no matter where you are, remember who you are. And this becomes significant because as a church, right, they've had this profound experience in Christ. And you know, the world can take a lot of things away from you. Life can have a lot of things turned upside down. If you've ever foreclosed on a house or lost a car or done something, you know you can have something one day, you can lose something the next. But you know what can't be taken from you? You know what remains anchored in you but so easy to forget during hard times? who you are, what Christ has shaped in you, what God has done through you, the essence, the identity of who you are anchored in Jesus Christ. And when Peter gets to remind them of who they are, there's a litany of things he could have said. He could have written a really long list, but he doesn't. Instead, he looks at them and he chooses specifically to tell them they are a royal priesthood. He says to you who've been scattered about, to you in exile, I want you to know you are a royal priesthood priesthood. And then he tells them in this very same verse, why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What Peter's doing here that's really important that I want us to see, because this matters for us when we think about ourselves, what does he mean when, he called, when we're called priests? Right? What, what does this look like? He's, he's looking at them. He's essentially saying, even though you are scattered about, even though you feel like you've lost your identity, even though you feel like you've lost your story, wherever you go, you bring the temple of God. You yourself are the temple. You bring this with you. You are a priesthood and a royal priesthood in that. You represent Christ. And why? So that you can proclaim The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let me put this really simply, and it's this. A priest is someone who has a ministry to people. I know that's really simple, but it's important and profound. A priest is someone who has a ministry to people. So friends, what do we do when the Bible tells us that we are a priest? Not that like, I as a pastor, or we collectively as one church, but that each of us are a part of this royal priesthood. What it's saying is this, and this is the only point I have for the entire morning. Just one singular thing, cause I wanted it to be clear. And it's this, wherever you are, you have a ministry. Say it again. Wherever you are, you have a ministry. You do. Do you think of yourself that way? Does that impact you that way? Like, do you, do you wrestle with this at various times? If not, I'd love for you to start. If not, I'd love for you to just consider this. I mean, consider his audience. This would not have been an easy thing for them to wrap their heads around too. Do you, we read this here. We're like, oh, I bet you the Bible in the New Testament is just littered with places where it says you are a royal priesthood. It's not. When Peter writes these words... This would have hit them so directly, so squarely as something powerful and new for them. There's other places that allude to it. Paul refers to like the, the priesthood or the, he, that he's a minister of the priesthood ministry of the gospel. He says stuff like that. I think it's in Romans 15. There's, there's places where this gets dropped or referenced to. This is the only place that I'm aware of in the New Testament that so overtly looks at a group of everybody, the church, and says, you are a royal priesthood, describing it to, that you would would know this as part of your identity. And he's pulling language all the way back out of Exodus 19 when God establishes the priesthood there for the first time. When they heard this, they would have been going, wait, what? Us? No, we need priests. We aren't priests. And he's going, no, you, where you are, where you are right now, You are a royal priesthood and it's important that they get this because they find themselves scattered about amongst lands and places and things and they're people who know, much like what you know, that the love of God isn't conditional. It's unconditional. There are people who actually know that and have experienced that, that that's actually something real for them in their everyday, normal lives. They actually know this. They get to message that out and be the living, breathing experience of that thing. They know that grace isn't on a sliding scale. They know that it's anchored in Christ and the foundation that you build your life upon because they've had their hearts and lives, just like we have transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. They've interacted with it. They've spent time. They know this in their own heads, in their own hearts. They know that Jesus Christ has the power to transform the human heart, to bind people together in community in ways you never thought possible and to become a blessing to the world through his movement called the church. They know this because they're a part of it. And now they find themselves in places and spaces where... Churches didn't exist or people weren't experiencing these things and they have a whole lot of marvelous light inside of them waiting to make its way into a little bit of darkness, wherever that might be. They have a role. And so he says, I need you not to forget. I need you to know and I need you to anchor this. You are a royal priesthood because there's gonna be people in your life and people in your situation that are gonna need you to minister to them just like Christ does in that same powerful type of way, friends. And the same is true for you. And for me, right? As a follower of Jesus, the Bible tells us that you are a priest. So what does that mean? It means you have a ministry. Not a weird thing to think about. Maybe for some of us, I bet maybe we've never wrapped our our heads or opened our hearts up to even just the question. Can I ask you this question? What's your ministry? I don't ask that question to say like, what are you doing with your life? You know what I mean? Like the way a parent would ask a graduating teenager type of a thing. Not that. I ask it to say, God's made you, He's given you uniquely the life that you would you would have. He's transformed you, He's put His love and grace and things inside of your heart. You have a marvelous light inside of you, and it's bound into this unique person that you are, with a unique life that only you will live, with eyes of people that only you will see. What's your ministry? What do you see? What's the thing that you care about and step into? And I'm gonna imagine that for many of us, that's gonna be the first time that someone's ever asked us that question. And I don't expect you to just come up with a quick answer, but can I ask you, regardless of how the rest of this morning goes, in the next week, month, day, year, however long it takes you, will you wrestle with that question? What's my ministry? What does that look like for me? If I'm a priest in one manner of speaking, then what's this mean and look like For me, in my last year of college, I got a job selling clothes at uh, Banana Republic on Michigan Avenue in Chicago. It's really busy street, people are packed in, it's really big, Banana Republic, and I I got a job there. I I I have no passion or knowledge for fashion. I still don't. Some of you guys are like, we know, we see you on... We've, we've been here. you know. I, I just don't, it's not necessarily my thing or the way that I operate, but I needed a job because I needed help paying the bills and I needed it pretty quick at one point in time. My wife and I were, were just kind of scrambling and so I literally just took a resume and walked up and down Michigan Avenue trying to find work and I walked into Banana Republic and I, they hired me and I said, thank you, and I got a job there and I just had no idea what I was doing. And, And just to be really honest with you guys, at that point in my life, I I was in school and I was about a year away from graduating. I was studying Bible and theology and my desire was to go and be a pastor. I had no idea at that point in time that I would be a pastor here with you all that. I was still building a life and trying to figure out where God was going to take me. And so when I got this job at Banana Republic and I started working there all the time, it felt like a giant detour in my life. Have you guys ever had that moment where it's it seems like the long way between where you are and where you're trying to get to. And you're just like, this doesn't lead me. This isn't even what I wanna do. This isn't what I've been trying. Like, God, what are you doing here? And yet he taught me so much through this place. That's why I share so many stories from this era of my life with you all. And many of you know this. Uh, he used this place to surprise me again and again, uh, just about what I can do and what I can step in into in the life of other people. You know, one time there was a cashier who showed up and she was so sad that day. I remember walking into the break room and it's a large building. Normally I had lunch with about eight different people and this day it's just her. She's just sitting in the break room and she's sitting at a table and she's just crying. And I don't sit with her cause that'd be weird. It would. And I go and I sit at another table and I quietly eat a sandwich while she weeps at the table next to me for about five minutes, guys. That's awkward. And then finally she looks up and she goes, I'm sorry that you have to be here for this right now. And she says, my boyfriend I've been with for a very long time dumped me last night. And I just, and she starts crying. And I looked at her and I said, well, what's it like having to come to work today? I mean, this, had, this is not, probably not a tough thing or this is probably not an easy thing for you to do, just being here and navigating customers and everything. And she goes, oh, I'm a mess and I hate it. And she goes, I just hate that everyone gets to see me as damaged goods, that's what she said. And that struck me funny. I didn't, just being honest with you, I didn't like that she used the phrase damaged goods. She can say what she wants, it just hit me weird. And so I just looked back at her and I was like, you know, I don't know that I see you as damaged goods. It seems like you're going through a really hard moment right now where you've had a significant relationship in your life that has ended and that that's making you really, really sad. And doesn't that just make you really normal that this is pretty hard for you today? I mean, I'd have a very hard time being at work and then I just had this sense to say something. I didn't know what to say. Most of the time I would have stepped all over my words. And I just looked at her and I said, you know, also you're the kind of person I see around here that is constantly trying to help other people even when nobody's asked you to. You fold things and put things away and take care of those messes and stuff that other people made, even though that wasn't your job to do it. You're just trying to be helpful. And you're a person that people always come to just when they need to share something hard about their life or whatever it is, because you're actually kind and willing to listen and they know you genuinely care. And I was like, and I'm not the only one who sees this. Everybody knows this about you around here. And I said, so for what it's worth, hang in there until you find someone who cares about you the way you care about other people, because I hope that for you. And she just started weeping, which apparently I made it way worse. But then she looked at me and said, thank you. And it was a sincere moment and I walked out and I wasn't a pastor, I wasn't clergy, but it felt a lot like ministry. Another moment, I was was helping this guy in the fitting rooms and we were really busy that day. And so the only fitting room left for him was the handicap fitting room. It was massive and in the corner. And so he was in there in this big room. And I'm getting all kinds of stuff for him. And I come back to check on, you know, do you need another size or you need you everything doing okay? You know, you all right? And he goes, hey, can you come in here for a sec? And I go, oh man, <laughs> if you've never worked retail, let me just give you a rule. When somebody says, will you come inside of the fitting room? You're, every person's like, I don't want to. It's just, as true. And, and so he's like, we come in here. And I was like, uh, and he's like, Could, would you come in here for just a sec? And I go, I think so. That's how I respond. And the doors open. And then I just take a step inside of the room. And then he closes the door behind me. And I went, oh no, what's about to happen? And he reaches down and he starts putting his hand in this bag of things that I don't know what's in there. And he goes... I haven't told anybody this yet. And I just need to say it to someone. And I was like, please don't say it to me. That's what I'm thinking inside. Whatever this is, I don't wanna be a part of this moment. Like I I need to get out of here now. And he pulls out this little box and he opens it up and it's an engagement ring with the largest diamond I've ever seen in my life. To this day, I know you think I'm being dramatic. This was massive. And I look at him like, what? Like, I think probably for a moment, I was like, are you proposing to me? But he, he looks at me and he goes, I'm getting engaged tonight, or at least I'm going to propose and I'm so nervous and I'm so excited. And I hope she says yes. He said, I don't know anybody in Chicago. I have no family here. We're just visiting. And I just needed to tell somebody. And so thank you. And I got excited and I was like, tell me your story and tell me like, how'd you meet her? How long have you guys been dating? And you see you're nervous and he starts to share all of this stuff with me and I get this impression that he invited me in not just because he wanted to say something to me, but he's so nervous and that energy needed to go somewhere and I don't feel like, I'm like, I think we're okay. but just felt unfinished and so I looked at him so awkwardly and I was like, hey, are you religious? And he goes, no, why? And I was like, do you care if I, like, I know you're really nervous tonight and this is a really big deal for you. Do you care if I would pray for you? By the way, I don't walk around fitting rooms asking to pray. I know some of you guys are like, you're a pastor, so this is what you do. No, you don't. Nobody does this. (laughs) Nobody, like it's not a thing. I was just like, you would be where you're in a moment going like, I care and I'm not quite sure what to do. And here's a good rule for life. Anytime you don't know what to do and you feel like you're not quite sure, you can always pray. Like you can always just trust God with a moment and ask for help and, and so I did and I prayed for him and he said, what do I do? And I was like, so you're definitely not religious. And I was like, I'm gonna bow my head and say some things and I mean, you can close your eyes if you want and then I'll say amen, it'll be over. And I did, and then I start praying. As I'm praying, I just have this thought where I'm like, please don't let another sales associate open the fitting room door. Cause they're gonna see me standing there like this with my head bowed with a man holding an open ring box and he's quiet and we're both weird. And I don't like, it's just so weird. All of it's so strange. And I said, amen and prayed for him and just prayed for this whole endeavor that he was venturing into. And I was like, man, I hope, thanks for letting me be a part of this with you. I hope it goes great for you tonight. If you need another size, just let me know. <laughs> and walked Walked out. And I look back at that moment and it feels a lot like ministry. And you know what? I have hundreds of these stories and you know, cause I've shared so many banana republic stories over time, but you know what I learned there that I think God taught me that I think was so important for me, but I don't just think this is a truth for me. I think this is a bigger truth that's for all of us. And it's this, you don't have to be in full-time occupational ministry to have a ministry and I want you to know that you do not have to be in some full-time occupational ministry to have a ministry. Do you know who First Peter isn't written to? First Peter is not a letter to clergy. First Peter is not a letter to missionaries. First Peter is not a letter to like people who've somehow been like, okay, so I'm going to go into some full-time occupational type of ministry, and that, that's what I'm going to do. First Peter is written to people who are married and probably struggle with that sometimes. Who probably have questions about marriage and, and have to work through things together. First Peter is written to young people trying to build a life and figure it all out. First Peter is written to single people that are trying to build a career and trying to figure out what to do in this new place that they find themselves in. First Peter is written to older people that are, are trying to end well but also shape the next generation and care about pieces and things because of their history and their story. First Peter is written to all of us because it's written to the church. And you don't have to be an occupational full-time ministry to have a ministry, friends. He looks and he looks to everybody and he says, you've landed in this weird space where you don't know what to do and you feel like you lost ministry and you feel like you lost identity, but you, remember who you are, you are a royal priesthood and there's ministry all around you waiting to happen right here and right now. The endeavor isn't over. It's just transition to a new place and you're a part of it. Friends, I ask you again, what is your ministry? I know that for some of us, like I said, this is probably the first time we've ever asked that question. Maybe for others, an answer came immediately. Some of you will be thinking about this for a while, and that's good, wrestle with it, pray to God. Seek seek out what he might be leading you and guiding you towards. But as you do, I just thought it would be a kindness uh, in just moving through this here this morning or closing out to help us guide our, our process forward. And so I have three questions. Just three questions that if you're not sure where to start, start here. I can't tell you what to do, that would be prescriptive and the reality is, is God's gonna partner with you to show you the people that are in your life for the moments and things that are in your life. But I can, I can maybe give you a couple of questions to help guide you in that process in the same way that have been helpful to me. And they're really simple. It's these, just three, who, what, and where. I know you're expecting something profound and it's not. Who, what, and where? And I wanna unpack those for just a moment. Let's start with who. When you try to answer that question in your life, so okay, if I'm a priesthood and if I'm, there's ministry around me and what's that mean for me? Start with who, And, and here's a way to do that. Who is in your life? And I want you to think about this. Who is in your life? Start with people, right? When you read about the apostle Paul, you know what I love about Paul? Paul's really clear on what his ministry is. He feels called to be a minister to the Gentiles, which is a word that just means everyone who's not a Jew, which is a really big population, right? But he's got this heart for it. He's like, man, they didn't grow up with this Old Testament perspective and they didn't grow up with this grafted in knowledge of God and this understanding. And yet I want them to know that the kingdom of God is for them. And I want them to know that the love of Christ and Paul has this, he looks around and he sees people and he cares about this. He starts with a who. James becomes a minister to the orphans and the widows in Jerusalem, and this becomes an anchor in the ministry of the church because James goes, I I see the people that other people don't see, that other people overlook, and I wanna love them where they are because, man, the heart of God loves everybody in this way. And so I see them and I wanna step into this, right? Because there's people that they saw and that they cared about. What's this look like for you? You know, maybe for you, it's your family. We don't always think of our family as our ministry, but man, no one's ever gonna step into those moments to love our family the way that we would love them. No one's gonna have the impact that we would have because of the role that we have with them. Like, it's a significant thing. Do you see your family as your ministry? Maybe that's your who. Maybe it's your friend. Maybe you got a friend in your life right now who's walking through a little bit of darkness and could use a little bit of light. Or they just need to know that someone's with them or loves them or cares about them. Maybe they think love is actually conditional and you're just, the opportunity away from showing them, no, there's a deeper, more beautiful kind of love and I wanna love you that way, right? Maybe it's your coworkers. I recognize some of you probably hate your job. That's fine. You still have coworkers, right? When you think of the audience in 1 Peter, they're not sitting there being like, we're out here living our best life as exiles but there's still people all around them, which means there's still an opportunity. And it's not to minimize one or the other, it's just to say that wherever you transition to, wherever you find yourself, that there's someone around you that perhaps is your ministry, is someone to care about. Maybe it's your neighbor, and yes, even the crotchety one, right? Maybe it's that person. Maybe it's as simple as it's the grocery store cashier that you visit all of the time. Maybe it's that same person that you see in a coffee drive-through every morning because you do it all of the time. And it's just pausing to actually see them, to notice them and to care and just opening yourself up to that. Maybe it's a salesperson. Maybe it's a customer service agent. I don't know who it is. Who is in your life? When you start to ask that question, you start to open your eyes to who are the people that God has uniquely brought to me and placed in my life, or I find myself with them, your opportunity you're going to see is all around you. That doesn't mean everyone is your moment, but it, it's a starting place to open your eyes to the larger question and see where God takes you, isn't it? Who is in your life? This summer, I spent almost two months on the island of Curacao, uh, which is off the coast of Venezuela and the Caribbean uh, on sabbatical. And I got into freediving a little bit ago. And so I I love it. And I wanted to go where there's clear water and beautiful reef and things to look at. And I was like, I'm just, as part of my sabbatical, gonna do this like a discipline every day because it just anchors me in a really amazing way. And I love it. And and so I I wanna go do this. If you don't know what freediving is, by the way, it's where you wear... I don't know, you don't have to wear longer fins. I wear these big, long fins and you dive down and you hold your breath as long as you can to go as deep as you really can go. And, and you hang out down there and you see what's what, and then you swim back to the surface. It sounds really simple, right? More or less. Um, and, and so this is what I wanted to do. And I, I got all this stuff to go do it. And, and I, I was ready and I, I went. But the first rule of freediving is don't free dive alone. And it's because if like something happens, if you run out of breath and you pass out, you can drown. Or if like a shark, con- I don't know, if something happens, right? Like you need someone there to help you so that you don't drown. It's a really simple thing. Um, but I didn't have a buddy. And so I had somebody coming two weeks into my trip that was going to be a buddy for me, that was going to do this with me. But for the first two weeks I did not. And so I just thought to myself, well, I don't want to waste these two weeks. So I'm just going to make sure I dive within my limits and all these different things and not really push it and, and that's what I'm going to do. And my daughter walks up to me after seeing me do this for a day and she's like, hey dad, can I, can I free dive with you? And I said, sure. Yeah, sure, but I need to teach you a bunch of things first just to make sure that we're safe. She says, okay. And so I taught her. I taught her how to how to like rescue a person. And I taught her a bunch of other stuff and how to dive and how to hold your breath. And she started to do this and she was amazing at it. She didn't even have real free dive fins. She had these little tiny snorkel fins, but she dove to 20 feet and then 30 feet and then 40 feet on these tiny little fins. It made me nervous if I'm honest with you watching her do this, but I know she's got a buddy, I can help her out. And then when I would dive to like 60, 70 feet or whatever, she would be up there and she'd be looking down and waiting for me and she was an amazing buddy and we had a ton of fun. And so we get back and, we, and I look at her and I was like, hey, that was really great. I would love to pay for you to take like a free diving certification class just so you can feel more confident and see, see where you wanna go with this or what you wanna do. And she goes, yeah, dad, I don't think I wanna do that. And I said, really? Cause we just dove for like a whole summer and you were amazing at it. And I, it felt like you were having fun or was I missing something? And she goes, no, no, I, I was having fun for the most part. She goes, honestly, it's kind of scary. And I was like, oh, well that, I mean, yeah, I could see that. And then she goes, what happened was the first day I saw you out there and you're not supposed to dive without a buddy, we all know that, dad. (laughs) And so I know you really care about this and I know we came to Curious so that you could dive. So I just thought like, I'll be your buddy and I'll learn this with you. And so I went out to do that with you. She goes, but I don't ever wanna do that again, is that okay? And I said, yeah, you don't have to do anything that you don't wanna do, of course that's okay. And in that moment, I felt a little dumbfounded or I was replaying the whole like, experience in my head of like, where did I miss this? But you know what I felt immediately after that? Loved, loved. Because she looked out and here's all she did. And this is why this is not just for hurts for all of us she looked out she opened her eyes she saw somebody that she cared about and she saw a need or an opportunity or a moment in their life and she decided I'll step in and she felt an ounce of discomfort like a lot of discomfort to be honest with you and she stepped into that and partnered in such a way that man the translation of that is I'm so thankful and I feel so loved and she doesn't ever have to free dive again that's okay but it was powerful for me friends and there's moments like these around you guys all of the time there is somebody sitting in this room and I will not embarrass you I did this last hour and embarrassed somebody accidentally. So there's somebody sitting in this room that I know when they first came here, they didn't know anybody. They didn't know anybody. And so what they started to do was get connected and, and they've made this place a home for themselves. And so, I, and here's what I love, of their own volition, they've looked up and they've looked around them they've walked over to the Welcome Center and they've said, if anybody comes in to this church and they don't have a person with them and they don't have someone to sit with, I want you to bring them over and introduce them to me because they have a place with me. And they do this every single week and it's become like a ministry in this space. And I love it. And you wanna know the crazy thing? They don't get paid for any of this. You're just a person who opened their eyes and said, I, I love this, I wanna do this. I, if I were to ask this person, do you have a larger calling on your life? to No, but they opened their eyes and they saw someone and they cared about it. I'm so proud to be a part of a church where people are stepping into those moments and places and doing that in the same way. If you, want, if you don't have an answer to the question, what is my ministry? Start with the question, who? Who is around me? Who do I see? Who can I open my eyes to? And see where God takes you and see who he shows you. Second question, right? What, what? And here's what I mean. What skills and talents and perspective has God given you? What are the unique abilities you have? What are the experiences you've been through? How has he shaped you and made you and molded you? Some of you have walked through tremendous things in your life. Some of you have found greater experiences over time. Some of you have just really basic things that you're like, I could use this. You know, one of my favorite stories is when I was in youth ministry, there was a group of students that drove away every small group leader I ever recruited for them. It got to the point, and it's just because they were rambunctious and crazy and trying to contain them in a room was nuts. And so they did. People would always be like, I can't do this, right? I quit. And I'd be like, thank you for your service. And then I'd start looking for somebody else and try to, try to figure this thing out. Finally, I went to one of our pastors here who used to be a youth pastor. And I said, I need some help because this group's chasing off every leader. Will you do this? For, will you be their small group leader? And they stepped in. And one year later, they're like, Ryan, I'm not doing this anymore. And I said, okay. And it's not because they, they didn't love these people. They just fell in over their heads. And there's a gentleman in our ministry. His name was Chris. And he worked in the aerospace, in an aerospace-like company. And was super busy all of the time. But he was there and he showed up and he goes, I'll, I'll partner with them. He's like, and he said, but can I do it differently? And he said, you can do whatever you want, right? he said, okay. So here's what he would do. He was like, I can walk. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know what to do with this, but I know how to walk. And they don't seem like they're great sitting still. So he just started walking around our campus. If you had showed up on a Wednesday night, you would have seen a whole group of students just slowly walking around our whole campus down the road, up on the field, like everywhere, just constantly in motion. And he realized that while he walked, he could talk and ask them, how's your life? And would you think about what we talked about tonight or any of those different things? And they ended up being a small group for the duration of their time. And by the time these group of students were leaders or were seniors, they were actually leaders within the youth group creating space for other people in a powerful way. And I'm thankful for that. All because someone was like, I mean, I can walk. <laughs> so I guess I can step into that moment. They saw someone that they cared about, but they asked, what can I do? Well, I can walk and I can just be there. Sure, I'll do it. And God used that moment to do powerful things. It feels a lot like ministry, isn't it, friends? Right? Some of you guys are in a thing called helping hands around here, which I love, which means there's a group of people that are like, well, I know how to build things, and I like to like work with stuff and, and make and construct and fix things. And so they just went and built a porch for somebody who has been trying to figure out what to do with their hot like and and having a hard time with some of this stuff and they stepped in and said, we'll take care of this for you and they literally just out of love and care went to go serve somebody and built a porch and it has ministered to this person like you would not believe. See, you don't have to be the person who who can speak and do all kinds of amazing things. You don't have to be the person who has all these incredible skill sets. You just have to look at what you have, how God's wired you and look around you. Where is your ministry? What is it? What's your opportunity? And let that question guide you. Early in August, when we launched middle school ministry and all the other ministries around here, I was in the middle school building getting some stuff ready, some of our leaders, and there's a volunteer in there. And I looked, I was like, her name's Carol. And I said, Carol, you don't work in middle school. You're not a volunteer in the middle school ministry, are you? And she goes, no, but I sew. And she was sewing curtains for all of the windows in the entire ministry. And she did that and then she left and now she's sewing other things and doing other stuff simply because she wanted to step in and love somebody and now the middle schoolers are blessed every single week because of it. Because she was recognized an opportunity for her to have a ministry of some kind. It doesn't have to be crazy big, it just has to use what you've got to bring and see what God does with it. And friends, that brings us to the last question and it's where. And I love this question because this is the one that I think we pay the least amount of attention to. It's this, where do you spend your time? Most of us think ministry is the thing that only happens in a church. And we forget the fact that we go to workplaces. We spend times in our homes. We find ourselves in community groups and in other social settings and places and things. And all of that, is it a job? Yeah, is it a, is it a commitment? Yeah, is it a place you end up? Yeah, but it's also your opportunity. And I love that. Where do you spend your time? For the people in the first century church, Peter's looking at them going, well, this is where you now are and you're a priest. And there's a little bit of darkness around you that could use a little bit of your marvelous light. Go tell people what the love of Jesus looks like. Go be that living, breathing expression in a powerful way. Wherever you are, friends, your ministry is there. If you were to spend some time in the next couple of weeks and you start with that question of who, and I wanna challenge you to this. Think of just one person's name. Don't go walking around being like, here's my person, like there's some sort of project. Just do this for you. See who God brings up to you. Write down one person's name and then think about what your skills and abilities and talents and different things are and see what God wants to use there. And maybe write something down for that too. And think about where you spend your time and, what you're, and write something down for that too. And just start praying and seeking and walking around with eyes wide open and see where God takes you because you are a royal priesthood. You have the transformative love and grace of Jesus Christ in your life. You get to bring a whole lot of marvelous light into places that look for it and need it. And that is a powerful, powerful thing. Don't forget who you are the moment you walk out these doors because it goes with you. It's who we all are. And so friends, wherever we are, may we remember who we are. And wherever we find ourselves, may our eyes be wide open to see the who, the people that are in our lives, that God might open us up to that opportunity, have confidence, have courage to step in. May you be honest with yourself and open about your own skills and talents and abilities and perspectives that you bring to moments and see how God wants to use that. And may you recognize the different places and spaces that God puts you in, because it's all ministry waiting to happen all it needs. Is you let's pray, God. We love you, we do. I love that you call us priests. It's so weird, Lord, if I'm honest, but it's beautiful, isn't it? And so, we love that. And God, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to it. Lord, as people in this room are probably asking the question, What is my ministry? Maybe even for the very first time, uh, I pray, Lord, that there wouldn't be a weightiness to it, but a lightness that your grace would abound in that space. Open our eyes, open our hearts, just to see the opportunities around us and give us the courage and the confidence to step in. Teach us as one church, Lord, what it's like to to continue to love people in profound ways because you love us that way. And we wanna share a little bit of marvelous light, Lord. We thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.